Amen. Amen. Can you guys give it up for the worship team? They just prepare so well every single week, week in and week out. Man, that is just, it is just so special. Like, I was telling somebody between services, it still blows my mind every single week that we just get to do this together. Uh, I never thought I'd see the day where um, it just meant this much, but it's, um, or should I say, I never thought I'd see it again, but it's, it's great just to be together and hear you all singing um, and, and worshiping together, so I love that. Um, all right, well, if you are new around here, or if not, um, we're still, we're, we're pushing through the book of James right now. We're in week five of six, and um, this is a very dense book. There is a whole, whole lot there, and there is more than we can possibly get to on Sunday mornings, and this is why small groups are so important and are so helpful and why I've enjoyed mine so much, and I hope you're enjoying yours as well, and I wanna encourage you to, uh, to be a part of a small group um, because there is a whole lot here. Um, today, uh, if I could compare it to a sport, we're kind of doing a standing long jump because we got a whole lot of ground to cover and I'm not going to give you much run up, but we're just kind of going to dive straight into it. So if you don't mind, I'm going to just take a second to pray and then we'll just hop right in. Okay. All right. Heavenly father, I just thank you for the opportunity to preach this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for everything that it says. I thank you for the ways that it challenges us and it convicts us. And the Holy Spirit, I just invite you this morning to come and illuminate your word to our hearts this morning. Show us what you want to do uh, through it and show us what you want us to change uh, because of it. And we just submit ourselves to your lordship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we are in James chapter four. Uh, we're starting in verse 13 and we're going to read all the way through James chapter five, verse 12. It's going to be up on the screen. Here we go. It says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and let your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. All right. Now, if your Bible's like mine, that section is probably divvied up into three little sections with the, with the subheading and all that stuff. And it says, uh, one might say like boasting about tomorrow. 
And one's gonna say something like a warning to the rich. And then another one's gonna say patience in suffering. And I think sometimes we treat scripture and, and these, uh, these tools that we have, like the verse markers and the, and the chapters and the headings and all that, we kind of treat them like borders. And we feel like we have to stay in one and, and just you know, suck all the marrow out of it, get all the juice out of it, and then move on to the next one. Instead of reading it as a collective and as a whole, So my hope and my goal is today that we can kind of unpack what James is getting at, what his big thrust is for this whole entire letter as we hop into it. So here we go. Uh, Now, it is a sign of God's rich and boundless grace that I, of all people, uh, get to preach this particular text because um, I am a very rigid planner, um, probably to a fault, and I'm going to pick on myself here in a little bit, but I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's in my DNA or if it's a habit or what it is, but I am just really time conscious. Okay, I, am, I have a keen sense of timing and I know how long things are gonna take me to do. I know how long it's gonna take me to get from point A to point B. I just, I budget my time super, super well. Um, I, I joke with, uh, with my wife that I'm the time master and I get on her nerves because whenever we say we're gonna be somewhere at six and we arrive right at six, I point at the clock in my car and she really hates that, but that's just kind of the way I am and I, I kind of can't help it. I'm likely to over budget time than to under budget. I'm, I'm gonna give myself too much time to get something done than I am to give myself not enough time. Now this has some benefits. Um, I am very rarely late. I am incredibly prompt, uh, you know, all, all my life, as I've been working jobs, my bosses always say, like, we just love you because you show up and you show up on time. Uh, and that's pretty easy for me. And I get flustered and frustrated and anxious and disorganized and disoriented when I am late, which doesn't happen super often. So that's why I try to avoid being late is because it really throws me for a loop. Uh, another upside is I'm pretty organized in my schedule. I tend to know exactly when things are going to happen. And it also helps me be pretty realistic about what I'm able to get done. If I have a two hour window, I tend to know what I can fit in two hours and what's not going to fit in the two hours. So that's really nice. But the downside is that I get really impatient with big goals. Um, If if I can't do it in a day, I don't really want to do it most of the time, which is not a good thing. Uh, I am not very gracious when I get interrupted. And I'll tell you a fun story about how I had a whole day full of interruptions here in a little bit. Um, And, you know, I leave myself zero to no room for spontaneity. Because the problem with being spontaneous is you didn't tell me how much time it's going to take me, right? So I can't figure out how to fit it in. My wife, on the other hand, and I got permission to do this, um, my wife is very kind. She is very hardworking. She is very compassionate. She is very gracious. Um, But she struggles with time. (laughs) Um, she, She tends to bite off more than she can chew. She will struggle to, uh, to show up places on time except for work. She's pretty good about that. She might leave right as soon as the thing starts. So she gets there about 10, 15 minutes late sometimes. She, she doesn't get to her whole to-do list because she didn't realize how long it was going to take. Now, the upside to her, her way of being is that she is very patient with longer projects. She, we have this whole garden, which I've never experienced in life before, uh, um, at least not for a long time. My mom's here, so I, I better be careful because she, she grew a garden when I was younger. But she can, she can deal with that, even though it takes months and months for things to show up. She handles interruption very gracefully to the point where I can't even tell if I've interrupted her or not because she's just so smooth about it. Um, And she is very, very, very flexible. She will short herself time to give other people time. 
Um, and I am convinced that if you could just combine our strengths, if you could combine the things that we're good at, we would be absolutely unstoppable. That one person would be unstoppable. They'd be the CEO of every Fortune 500 company because uh, she is very patient and I'm very realistic. I am very punctual and she is very, very gracious. She is very flexible and I am fairly organized. Not super organized, but just enough. But if there's one thing that I really wish that I could learn from her, it's the ability to, um, to be patient when I'm interrupted. Because here's the deal. Interruptions are always going to happen. Uh, you know, they, they, they always say that um, sometimes when you, when you preach, uh, get ready to be tested in the area that you are preaching about because that's just kind of how these things work. And um, I had a few things happen as I was preparing this message this week. I had someone call me in the middle of writing. I was in a good little rhythm and I felt like I had to take it. And so I took it and I talked to him for a minute and then I had to send an email. I had another buddy who wanted to catch up and he said, I only want you for five minutes. And 32 minutes later, we hung up the phone. Uh, then Thursday, I had a, a set of appointments that I was trying to squeeze together. And uh, my understanding was we were going to leave at 945 and we were going to be there at 10. And then we were going to be back so I could leave at 11. Well, I get here at, at 945 and we leave. Well, we were going to leave at 10 and then we left at 1010. Um, and so I didn't make my other appointment and all this kind of good stuff. But interruptions just happen, right? Interruptions just happen. Maybe you're on the way home from the grocery store and your tire blows out. And that's an interruption. Maybe you're enjoying a peaceful, quiet morning with a cup of coffee on your front porch and you know there's an emergency and you hear lights and sirens in your neighborhood. Uh, maybe you're trying to go on a trip and the, the passport office delays your passport so you can't go on your trip. Or maybe you're trying to, to take an exam to get your degree and they just won't schedule your exam and they keep pushing it back. Maybe you're trying to have a life in general and then a global pandemic happens, right? But here's the deal. If we could schedule our interruptions, then they wouldn't be interruptions right? And this is the point. You can't schedule your success any more than you can schedule your pain or your interruptions or your tragedies or your trauma, whatever. Let's do a thought experiment. Try, try some of these statements on for size and tell me how weird they feel. Don't actually tell me, but you know, you can respond. Um, can you imagine how weird it would sound to call up your mom or dad who is struggling with an illness and say, hey, it looks like you've got your, your hospital visit sometime during finals week, but I can't really make that. Could you push that back to Christmas break so that I can come? Or can you imagine calling up your boss and saying, hey boss, um, you know, Wednesday I'm going in for my, uh, for my five-year car crash, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wreck my vehicle on the way to work so I won't be there. Or, or can you imagine saying, you know, we, we decided to go on a trip this summer because next summer we talked to our friend and he's going to have his midlife crisis, his marriage is going to fall apart, he really needs us to be there, so we decided to do that. Or, or saying, you know, this, this weekend doesn't work for me. I've got a teenager. They're really struggling with depression and anxiety and they might try to take their own life so I can't do this weekend. It's out. Doesn't that sound crazy? Doesn't that sound weird? It just doesn't sit with us. And yet, we try to plan our success with that much definitiveness and yet we can't. And this is the point that James is getting at. That pain and interruptions have a way of coming. Life has a way of happening. And James says this. He says our lives are a mist. We appear for a short time and then we vanish. We don't even know what's gonna happen tomorrow. We don't even know what's gonna happen later today. You know, I could trip and fall off the stairs on my way down today and I could bust my nose open and I could spend time in the ER and then I'd miss lunch with my in-laws and all this kind of good stuff. But we don't, we don't have a way of figuring that out. So is James saying that planning is a sin? Is he saying it's a sin to move or to start a business or, or make a plan? Well, no. 
gratefully, because society kind of works that way. We have operating hours, and we have, we have schedules and all that kind of stuff. But what James is getting at is that, that if, if, if we go through life presuming all of our plans upon God, and just assuming he's going to green light all of them, and if we let our plans get in the way of his plans, then for us, that's sin. He says it right there. He says, whoever knows the right thing to do but fails to do it, for him, it is sin. So let me ask you this. What does it look like for you to leave room for God's plans in your life? What if we tried this on for size? What if we took some of our goals and we just kind of restated them a little bit differently? Instead of saying, I want to be married and have two kids by age 28, which was my goal, and I was married at age 28 with no kids, and it's great. I wouldn't have it any other way. But what if instead of saying that, we said, you know what? I would really like to get married, and I would really like to have kids. But whenever it happens, it happens. And if I get married and if I have kids, then I'm going to love my spouse well and sacrificially. And if I have kids, then, then I'm going to teach him to follow after Jesus the best that I possibly can. What if we did that? What if instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to start a company, I'm going to start a business, and I cannot mess this up because I have a business degree and I have all this capital and I know where to open and how to open and when to open and all that kind of good stuff. I've got the perfect building, perfect plan, all this kind of stuff. What if instead of doing that, we said this? What if we said, God gave me the ability and the interest, because it's not universal, <laughs> to open a business and to run a business. And I'm going to open it, and this is what I'm planning on doing it, and I hope it succeeds. And I, as, as I do it, I'm going to do good work, and I'm going to learn. And if, I ha if it gets big enough, I'm going to give some people jobs, and I'm going to give them benefits, and I'm going to give them the opportunity to take care of themselves, and I'm going to be a good boss. And ultimately, I'm going to glorify God in my business. What if that was our goal? What if we tried to, to, to loosen our grip on our plans a little bit? Here's what I want to tell you this morning. Prayerful planning is greater than prideful presumption. And we're going to use alliteration today because it's just kind of what you have to do, right? It helps you learn it. It helps, you, it, helps it stick. But prayerful planning is greater than prideful presumption. And here's why. Number one, it leaves the results up to God. Okay, instead of feeling like the outcome is entirely dependent on you, it leaves you with the rightful view that God is, in the one, is the one in control and not you. It makes space for whatever God has in mind, for whatever twists and turns or delays or advances there are in the plan. And who knows? Maybe God is going to bring himself a lot more glory, and maybe he's going to bring you and a lot of other people a lot more good than you and I could possibly plan for or account for if we leave it up to him. Number two, it grounds your joy. Listen, God gives good gifts. He knows how to give good things to his children. But the second that you start to, to make your joy and your happiness dependent on your plan working out, you're setting yourself up to fail. But if you, if you ground your joy in who God is and what he has in mind for you, the kind of God that he is, and you say, Lord, whatever you want to happen, I want to see that happen, then it grounds your joy. Number three, it guards your expectations. You know, the bigger the expectations you have, the bigger your disappointments usually are. And if your plans fail, then what? Then what do you have left? Usually, you have bitterness, you have disappointment, you have sadness, you have grief, sometimes towards yourself, sometimes towards other people, a lot of times towards God, who didn't greenlight your master perfect plan. But putting your trust in God protects you from such deep disappointment. 
You know, the other day I was listening to a preacher from out in California, and he, as he was preaching, he said something to the effect of God actively resisting the proud. And I sat with that for a second. It just didn't quite sit with me for some reason. I couldn't figure out why. But like this image of God getting up off of his throne, getting out of his chair, and coming to oppose pride and prideful people. Something about that feels weird. I mean, like, in the Old Testament, we're, we're cool with it. We're fine with it, right? You know, you have the story of Exodus and how, how uh, God sends the 10 plagues to the Egyptians to grant the Israelites release. And so then they all come and Pharaoh says, fine, get out of here. And then the Israelites leave. And then Pharaoh's like, wait, what was I thinking? I want to get him back. And so God leads the Israelites through the desert and he, he lifts up the Red Sea and he, he stops the flow for a little bit, lets them get across on dry land. And then when the Egyptians come, and the Israelites are complaining because they're like, Moses, did you just bring us out here to die? Well, when they get to dry ground, God resumes the flow of the Red Sea, and the text says they were all gone. They were all dead. None of the Egyptian army survived. But that's Old Testament, right? It's, somehow it's fine there, but we don't, this, this image just doesn't quite sit in the New Testament. So I don't know about you, but I, sometimes I think that God resisting is just God kind of withholding, right? You know, God, God may not give you a certain blessing if you don't do a certain thing or do it a certain way, or, you know, God, God won't make uh, people with, with, with bad intentions or bad morals. He won't, he won't have them succeed. But Jesus said that God causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall on the good and the evil, on the just and the unjust. And if Christianity were just this thing where everything works out fine, everything works out great, you get everything that you want, then why would Christianity go through all the resistance it's gone through throughout the years? Why wouldn't it spread like absolute wildfire? Wouldn't, why wouldn't everyone want a piece of that pie? But the Christian life is not suffering free, it's suffering proof, right? And if you look back in James chapter four, verse six, James says this, God opposes the proud. Present tense, it's active. It doesn't say he opposed the proud. He used to oppose the proud. That's how God used to do things. And he says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And James paints a picture here, and if you ask me, it kind of reads like a post-apocalyptic movie or a novel or something like that. And, and he talks about all these miseries that are coming upon the rich in the present age. And he says this, he says, your riches have rotted and your clothes have been eaten up by moths. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. So far, it doesn't sound like we're having a lot of fun. Okay, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So, so James is talking to these people who have just gotten rich. They've gotten fat off the backs of others. They've hired people to do their work. They've hired people to help them get to the point where they are, but then they don't sign their paychecks. And that's fraud. And James says that their cries are coming and they're reaching the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, that phrase, the Lord of hosts, it's not one that's in the New Testament very often. It translates literally to Lord of Sabaoth. If you remember a, a, a song that was popular a few years ago, this is where we get the phrase, the God of angel armies. Okay, it presents an image of God, not so much as a judge making decisions on his throne, but as a God who is suiting up for war and leading his armies into battle. He's a warrior king, a warrior God. So I imagine that this is something that James, the little brother of Jesus, learned firsthand from Jesus, the sense of just how seriously it is that God takes this matter of people who rip other people off, who use other people to climb a ladder of success, who neglect other people, who make their lives a misery just to get to the point where they want to be. 
People who look out for number one without looking out for others. It kind of reminds me of, um, there's a section in Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus lays out these, these woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. And this is what he says about them. He says they practice, sorry, they preach, but they don't practice. They tie heavy burdens and they put them on people's shoulders, but they don't lift a finger to help them. It says they do everything that they do just to be seen by other people. They love to sit in the best seats. So you'll find them in the front row, you'll find them in first class, and they love to be called the best names. They wanna be called doctor, they wanna be called professor, they wanna be called pastor, rabbi, teacher, whatever. They love that stuff, they live for it. But then they shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, and they don't go in either. Jesus says they make a proselyte, and I'm not really sure why my Bible still says proselyte, uh, but basically think a convert, and they make him uh, twice the child of hell that you are, is what Jesus says. He said they value the temple's gold over the temple. So they love the offering, but they don't care about the building where God has decided to make his presence. He says they value the gifts put on the altar more than the altar itself. He says they tithe, but they neglect justice and mercy and faithfulness, which are the weightier matters of the law. He said they clean the outside of the cup, but on the inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Jesus says you're like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful, but on the inside, there's nothing but bones and uncleanness and rotting corpses and the smell of death. And people see them looking righteous, but inside, there's just hypocrisy and lawlessness. So it sounds to me like God's pretty opinionated about this idea. Now, we don't know that James is writing this specifically to Pharisees, but James is writing to the 12 tribes, which implies the Jews, and the Pharisees are a sect of Jews. And so it stands to reason that there might be some Pharisaical influence or some, some Pharisaical mindset or teaching somewhere in them. And what, what James is saying here reminds me of what Jesus says in Luke chapter six, verse 24. He says this, he says, "'Woe to you rich, for you have received your consolation.'" He's saying, hey, you've already had your fun. You've gotten your respect. You've gotten your front row seat. You've gotten to fly first class. You've gotten people to call you fun names. You've gotten to make people's lives miserable, but that's all the fun that you're gonna have. He says, you've fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. And here's the one I would give to you this morning. There's a difference between feeding and fattening, okay? Now, this was written to Jews, and so this would evoke a certain imagery in them because you would fatten an animal for a feast or for a festival, and maybe some of you, if you have any kind of background in, uh, in animal farming, you might know a thing or two about this. You probably know more than I do because everything that I've learned, I've basically learned from commentary, but basically when an animal is prepared for slaughter, it's taken away from the rest of the flock, and it gets all this special attention and special treatment, and it gets to eat a lot. Okay, one commentator says that it lived deliciously, um, which I just love that wording. Um, and it's having a lovely time. It's getting all the love. It's getting all the attention. It's getting all the food. And then one day they take it back and then and it's gone. It's dead. And all that food that it got, that it enjoyed, I'm going to use a pig for an example. It just, it grew on and it became meat. And now we get some pork chops and we get some bacon and we get some sausage. So we're better for it. But that pig already had its fun and it's dead. It's done. It's over. So, from our end, feeding means simply choosing to have enough. Feeding means contentment. It means taking what God gives, what God plans for us, what God intends for us, and accepting it with grateful and humble hearts. 
knowing that God is our source, knowing that all things are made for him, by him, and through him, and for him all things exist. It it implies giving or receiving that which is needed. It doesn't go into excess and self-indulgence. A feeding mindset says, I'm grateful for what I have, and I'm gonna fill up, and if there's more, I'm gonna share it. And if there's not quite enough, then I'll take less than enough if it means that my neighbor gets to eat too. Fattening, on the other hand, it means plumping up. It means getting extra, demanding extra, fighting for extra, getting what's yours, going above and beyond what is necessary into what is indulgent. It's when you don't pass the bowl at supper because you you want everything that's left. You want all the mashed potatoes. You don't want anyone else to have them. It's a poisonous mindset that throws you into the cycle of always fighting for yourself and only yourself, for your needs and for your desires and for your goals. Fattening leaves no room for interruption, no room for generosity, and it has no concept whatsoever of enough. And this doesn't necessarily have to be money, I don't think. It can be attention, it can be relationships, it can be time, it can be entertainment or clothes or whatever your hobby is. But are, 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 you, are you content to stop at enough? Does enough exist for you? Because this is the deal. Faithful feeding is greater than fraudulent fattening. It is better to have enough. It is better to be satisfied. It is better to be content than to desire more and more and more and to crawl over other people, to hurt other people, to neglect other people in order to get it. I don't know about you, but I don't want to get to the end of my life and find out that I had all the fun that I'm going to have right here and now. I want to have a good time now, but I know that a life with Jesus eternally is better than anything that's here right now. So as we've gone through the book of James, this pattern seems to emerge, and it's nothing new. It's not groundbreaking. It's common in the New Testament. James is not the first one to say it, but basically he's laying out through this whole letter that there is a natural way to live and there is a spiritual way way to live. And as he's writing to the 12 tribes, he describes what each way is. The natural way is marked by a tendency to quit when the heat gets turned up. To hear the word and not to do anything about it. That's all in James 1. To favor some people over others. To believe and not do. That's in James chapter 2. To bless God and curse others from the same mouth to be jealous and selfish, that's James 3 and James 4, to make friends with the world, to fight and quarrel and dispute, to gossip and slander each other, to boast about our plans and to plan outside of God's will, and to get ahead by any means necessary, to defraud and to live in self-indulgence, here in James chapter 5. This is the selfish way. This is the natural way. This is the easy way. This is what comes, comes natural to most of us. But the spiritual way is this. He says to preserve, or sorry, to preserve, to persevere under trial, to ask God for wisdom, to do the word, not just to hear it, to treat everyone as equal and to shy away from partiality, to complete your faith by your works, to tame your tongue, to receive wisdom from God and to sow a harvest of righteousness that you then get to sow or you get to reap in peace to stop feeding our own desires, to submit ourselves to God and to humble ourselves before him, to live mindful of and submissive to the will of God. And finally here in James chapter five, to be patient until the coming of the Lord, to hold out for something better 
the arrival of King Jesus. Now, when I did my little experiment that I told you about at the beginning, I copied and pasted this whole text and I put it in a Word document and I erased the verses and the chapters and the headings and I just read it and it's three paragraphs. If you take the first two words from each paragraph, it says this, come now, come now, be patient. So context clues show us that James is talking about ways in which we choose to be impatient. Come now, away from your boasting and planning. Come now, away from defrauding people and hurting people and hoarding your riches because it's gotten as good as it's possibly going to get. And be patient until the coming of the Lord. Establish your hearts. See how the farmer waits for the earth to bring forth its fruit, its precious fruit. He's saying, you keep trying to make all these good things happen. You keep trying to make your plans happen. You keep trying to have all of your fun. You keep trying to do all of your stuff, everything that you care about. You want to make your plans happen. You want to make your, your life the way that you want it to be. You want to avoid trials and tribulations and difficulties. You want to avoid that, but you have to wait. You have to ride it out. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be part of the journey. James says this. He says, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. Think about it. Quick results never inspired anybody. (laughs) Okay. When was the last time that you grabbed a TV dinner and you put it in and you hit a, a, a minute 30 on the microwave and it went beep and you ate it and you were like, oh, what a magnificent culinary experience. But what about Thanksgiving? I have Thanksgiving on my mind for some reason today. Thank God it's next after Halloween. But think about Thanksgiving where, where people wake up at four in the morning, five in the morning, six in the morning, and they, they, they make the turkey and everyone, everyone labors in their own kitchen and, and makes this, this masterpiece of a meal, but it takes time. It takes a lot of time. There is a kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek uh, fan theory or suggestion, if you will, uh, about Lord of the Rings. So if you're not a nerd like me, I hope that you'll forgive me, but uh, I, I basically speak Lord of the Rings sometimes, where um, people, people hypothesize that Gandalf could have just um, called the eagles who, who got him off of Saruman's tower and then rescued Sam and Frodo out of Mordor later on. He could have just called the eagles at the beginning of the story. And the eagles could have just dropped into Mordor and they could have dropped Frodo off and he could have flung the ring into Mount Doom and then it'd all be done. None of the drama, none of the conflict, none of the war, none of the tension, none of the heartbreak, none of that stuff. It'd be done. The ring would be destroyed. We wouldn't need all three books, right? But we'd be out three really good books. And we'd be out three really good movies, or at least two and a half, but I don't know how they'd make that short of a story into a good movie. But think about it. Look at the stories that inspire us, that cause something to rise up in us. We're inspired by people who made the decision to put the time and the work in to to lose weight and to transform their bodies. We're inspired by people who overcome depression and addiction to live a life full of hope and of freedom. We're inspired by people who lose everything financially, but they keep moving forward and they build a company, they build a career. We love a rags to riches story, right? We're inspired by people who endure betrayal and hardship in relationships, but they choose forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. We're inspired by people who have to start over in a new place with no friends, no community, no familiarity, but then they learn to thrive in that place. 
We're not inspired by people who don't struggle. We're not inspired by people who always have it easy, but we're inspired by people who don't quit. We consider those blessed who remained steadfast. There's just something about adversity and about challenge that that leads to a greater and a deeper satisfaction. Something about these stories causes something to rise up in us, to stir within us, and it causes us to be willing to endure a little bit more too, to persevere and to press on, to ride out the storms. There's something about watching um, free solo that makes you want to climb a mountain. There's something about watching Lord of the Rings that makes you want to fight evil with every ounce of your being and every bit of energy and time that you have. There's something about the book of Job that makes us say, if Job could lose all of that and he wouldn't obey his wife who said, curse God and die, but he continues on and even though it's hard and even though he asks God a lot of questions and even though God has to basically come down and say, do you even lift Job? He perseveres, he sticks with it and he never curses God. And this is what James is calling followers of Jesus to, a life of contentment, contentment and patient perseverance. And the gospel makes us able to persevere. There's just something about Jesus and the fact that he waited 30 years to start his ministry that he always knew he was going to do. And he only got it for about three years. But seeing Jesus wait makes us able to wait. There's something about seeing Jesus deal with people, his disciples, who, who just didn't seem to get it. And sometimes they were just dense. And they just didn't learn and didn't learn and didn't learn. But it makes us able to be patient with people. There's something about seeing Jesus spend his time with broken people and sick people and lost people and people that no one else wanted to hang out with or spend time with that makes us realize that our lives aren't too short to associate with people like that. In fact, our lives are too short not to. There's something about seeing Jesus say, listen, birds have holes and foxes have their nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. It makes us look at what we have. And maybe you're in an apartment or a duplex that you don't like, or maybe you've got a leaky faucet or you need to remodel some part of your house, but you have enough. And it makes you realize I have enough and I want to make what I have better and I, I want to improve it. That's all great. But what I have is enough. There's something about Jesus knowing that Judas was going to betray him, but he washed his feet and he fed him supper. That makes us able to take people who have hurt us and betrayed us and say, I can forgive them too. And I could go a lot longer with these kind of things. There are plenty more, but this one's my favorite. (laughs) There's something about seeing Jesus in the garden when he knows what's coming, he knows that when he, when he goes out of there, he's going to be arrested and they're going to beat him and they're going to twist the crown of thorns into his scalp and they're going to whip him and they're going to tear chunks of flesh out of his back and they're going to make fun of him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to pluck out his beard. They're going to hang him up on a cross. They're going to nail his hands and his feet. He's going to be hung naked, starving, thirsty, absolutely humiliated in front of everyone. He knows that and he says, Father... If I could not do that, that'd be great. But not what I want, but what you want. Not what I will, but what you will. 
And that brings into perspective all of our pain and all of our suffering and all of our disappointment and all of our fear and our insecurity and our weaknesses. And we see that Jesus faced all of that and more at the cross. And we can say, just like Jesus, Father, whatever your will is, let it be done in me. Friends, there are two ways to live. You can get your way or you can go God's way, basically. I think it was C.S. Lewis who used to say that um, there are two people in the world, those who say, or those, those to whom God says, um, my will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. We can trust in ourselves. We can put our plans first. We can put ourselves first. We can go through life feeling like we have to get even. We have to get ours. We have to, you know, get, what's, get what we deserve and all that kind of good stuff. We can go through trying to get our plans, trying to get our way. And this, this road could be full of nice things, but ultimately it's a dead-end street because enough is a myth. You can never be enough. You can never have enough. You can never do enough. You can never achieve enough. Or you can go God's way. We can establish our hearts in Jesus who never, ever changes, who will never let us down, who will never break his promises and who gives us a hope and an anchor for our souls, a peace and a joy that nothing in the world could possibly give us. It's up to us. It's your choice. If you're here this morning and you've never made the decision to, um, to surrender to Jesus with your whole life, I want to encourage you that we would love to pray with you this morning. There's some people out there who would love to pray. They've got masks on. They won't touch you if that's, if that's what you want. We just want to pray with you. If you are here and you have been trying to get your way and you have trying to been make thing, you, you've been trying to make things happen for yourself and you're, you're, you're disappointed and you're burnt out and you're frustrated and you just want to live a different way, I just want to encourage you that we want to pray with you this morning. If you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, but maybe you've gotten your priorities wrong. Maybe everything's out of whack. Maybe you've been saying, my will be done, my will be done, my will be done. And it's time to say, God, your will be done. Whatever it looks like, even if it's hard, because I know that you're going to carry me through it. I know that there's a better day coming when you come back and all things are going to be made new and there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth and we get to enjoy eternity with God. Maybe that's you this morning. Either way, we want to pray. If you're watching online, I want to encourage you to go over to vineyardrichmond.com. Uh, look for the chat button in the bottom right-hand corner and there, I promise, there are real people on the other side who want to pray with you. Let's pray together today before we worship. Father, we just want to see your will be done. Your ways are, are higher than ours. Your thoughts are are higher than ours. And we just want to come this morning and surrender to you. Because we know that when you show up, things change. So we just invite you, Holy Spirit. We invite you to speak to our hearts. We invite you to show us the sin that we need to repent of. We invite you to give us the wisdom that we need to take the next step. We want to be a people who are found to be patiently waiting for the coming of the Lord. We want to be a people who say, your will be done, Father not mine. We want to have an encounter with you this morning because we're, as we're about to sing, when you come into the room, when you show up, everything changes and chains break and prisoners get set free and the dead rise and the lame walk and the blind see. And we want to see that, Lord. May it be here. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, church, let's stand up and let's worship together.